Hello, this is Ahmed Tahseen. Today's episode, probably the best episode we've done on this channel so far. The guest is phenomenal and he has so much wisdom and knowledge to share. However, we've had some issues with the audio and we've done our absolute best to sort them out. As you watch, the audio will keep on getting better and better and it's just only the 15 minutes. Please do not forget to subscribe and like for more episodes to come. Thank you and enjoy this episode. Okay, for Halak. Alhamdulillah, you want to test my Arabic, yeah? No, I mean, <laughs> honestly, your Arabic is amazing. No, I grew up, I didn't believe in anything. I was an atheist, I didn't believe in any god, I didn't believe in anything. If I looked at the Muslims, I would never become a Muslim. I found myself homeless overnight. I was grinding doing anything that I could do to get 60 pounds at the end of the week to be able to put food on the table. From the time that I converted to Islam, there was always that kind of desire to want to to want to be able to speak Arabic. No, but honestly, like, it's really impressive how you picked up the language, and Arabic is such a tough language to learn. You don't have to be perfect, right, to be able to communicate. Like, I always tell people I'd much rather be able to communicate with mistakes than stay perfectly silent. Get out of our country, go back home. Like, where do you think I'm from? Like, I'm more English than you. Walking my own city, my city of London, that have been home for so many years, that felt like home, starting to no longer feel like home, because of the way that people behave towards me. The hardest thing in life is giving your best every single day. Innovation has nothing to do with the dollars that you have. We have no interest in being, you know, the next Uber-level organization. We don't want two or three levels of management within our organization. We want to keep it small, personalized. If you're putting content out and looking for the response, you will stop really quickly. I blew up on TikTok by accident. You said, you said a really good thing, a great thing. Leaders will learn by leading. How are you, Brother Abdurrahman? I'm doing well, Ahmed. Thanks for coming in today. Pleasure to be here. The pleasure is absolutely mine. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> How's your day been? Yeah, so far so good. So far so oh. I think it's about to get a lot better doing this with you. 100%. 100%. Okay for Halak. Oh, alhamdulillah. Bekhir. You want to test my Arabic, yeah? No, I mean, <laughs> honestly, your Arabic is amazing. No, no, it's not amazing. No, honestly. It's okay. I get by. I get by. No, because I've seen a lot of people that have been trying to pick up the language, and Arabic is such a tough language to learn. Uh, perhaps. I mean, I lived, I've lived amongst Arabic-speaking people for so many years. A lot of people say to me, how come your Arabic isn't better than what it is? Which is understandable. They say, oh, if I went to England... If I went to America, I, you know, my cousin went there and he lived in England for six months and, you know, he, he can speak English fluently. But that's what we call an immersive environment, right? Where everything around you is the second language. For me, I lived in Saudi Arabia, for example, for, what, 21 years? But the language that was around me wasn't, wasn't uh, you know, Arabic. I was speaking English most of the time. You know, I speak English at work, speak English to my family, speak English in the shops. Time for Arabic was just a small amount, but I managed to pick up something. And uh, I get by. No, well done. And how long did it take you to pick up the language fully? Uh, well, I haven't got the language fully, so I'm no, still... No, but honestly, be, I, you're I, good. I mean, a few, I think a few, a good few years, two, three years, I started to get a little bit confident. Wow. Um, and that's, that's, I think that's the case for anybody who's in an environment where, you know, they're exposed to a language that isn't their first language. They're going to pick up some, but you're going to pick it up according to how much you're actually immersed in it. You know, so again, if you're an Arabic speaking person, Arabic's your first language, and then you go to England, where there's no Arabic, essentially, you're going to really pick up the English language far quicker than, for example, somebody that comes to Dubai. If you come to Dubai, you're not going to necessarily pick up much Arabic because everybody's, everybody's speaking English, right? That's true. Yeah. And I suppose as well, it's all about uh, the person or the individual desire. 
to learn the language. Yeah, that's very true. So I've met lots of Arabs mm. who've been living in the UK for a long time. Yeah. And their English is really bad. Right. <laughs> Honestly. Yeah. But, but, but don't forget, I mean, it's, it's easier, you know, it depends on their age. Everybody's different. Some people just naturally pick up languages. I mean, somebody, you know, as we get older, it becomes more difficult, right? There's that, I think it's an Arabic saying that says, when, memorizing when young's like writing on stone and memorizing when you're older is like writing on water. Yeah. You know, that, it's, it's my not easy. My grandmother used to say that. Really? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. wow. May she rest in peace. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean. I mean. No, but um, honestly, like, it's really impressive how you picked up the language and, you know, you, you post your content in Arabic and yeah, it's yeah. great. <laughs> but what made you be, be like, okay, that's it. I'm going to pick up the language. I'm going to start learning Arabic. Well, the first, I think, you know, after I, after I converted to the religion of Islam when I was 18 years old, obviously Arabic became a more important part of, of my life because the book that, we, that I wanted to learn was in Arabic, the Quran, right? So I knew that I had to start to learn Arabic. So I started to learn the alphabet after a couple of years of being a Muslim, the Arabic alphabet. But there is English version of the Quran. The translation, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, you know, when we pray, for example, everything, when we, when we pray, we're, we're, we're reciting we're excited, the yeah. verses from the, from, the, from the Quran, which is the Arabic. So it's always, you know, from the time that I converted to Islam, there was always that kind of desire to want to, to want to be able to speak Arabic a lot better than I can now even, you know? Wow. But, um, but again, as I said, I get biased about survival. I also like to show people that, you know, uh, you don't have to be perfect, right? To be able to communicate. Like I always tell people, I'd much rather be able to communicate with mistakes than stay perfectly silent. You, can be, you could be silent perfectly. You could do a perfect job of saying nothing. Or you could be imperfect, but communicate. And I'd much rather be able to communicate with people with mistakes than just stay perfectly silent, you know? So I like to show people in my videos, okay, to make mistakes. I mean, I became famous. One of the things I became famous for was my love of shawarma, food, right? And, and I used to say, Hibbul had the shawarma, which means I love this shawarma, right? Because I do love shawarma. One day I made a video saying in Arabic how much I love it. It was during COVID. I was doing a lot of, lot of uh, videos at that time. And I just told people how much I love shawarma. But actually, I think you can tell me, as far as I know, you're meant to say, it's a feminine. So hadi is this yeah. in Arabic, but it's masculine. But I think shawarma, I was told, is actually feminine. So you should be saying hadi. But I was referring to it in the masculine sense. I mean, you still can say it. Uh, I, I, yeah, I mean, I did. Right. Yeah, no, but I wasn't saying hibbul shawarma. That's what people say. I was actually referring to the one in my hand okay. at the time. So yeah, I love shawarma in general, but I meant like, I really love this specific shawarma. I love it. I really do. And uh, so I would make videos. There would be mistakes in my Arabic, but I think that authenticity of just somebody who's just trying to communicate is what helps to kind of accelerate the social media side of things. Because people like to see authenticity. People like to see, you know, people aren't looking for perfection. They're looking for authenticity a lot of the time. So that's why I use Arabic in my videos up until now, even though I know it's, you know, there are many, many mistakes. But I'll tell you, any time that somebody comes up to me whose language, first language isn't English and they communicate in English with me, when they do that and I hear their mistakes, I'm never thinking to myself, oh, I look at their mistakes. I'm just thinking, oh, this person's trying to communicate with me in English, you know? Like, people don't watch other people's mistakes, you know, do your best to communicate. No, absolutely right. I mean, we, we're all humans and no one is perfect. Absolutely. And practice makes perfect. I want to speak about your background, mm. your childhood, mm. and what made you the person you are today. Okay. So where do you want me to start? Tell me. 
But if you go back in time, 20, 30 years. 30 years ago, I was 18 years old. And uh, it was at that time that I was at a crossroads in my life. I came from a very privileged family, very lovely family, beautiful family. Just me, my mom, dad, my sister. Very, um, you know, my father had a very, very large, uh, successful business called Afia Carpets that he inherited from his father. I was always planning to take over that business. That was always going to be what I, what I did. Because of that, I never worried about doing well in school. I was always a rebel when I was younger. I got kicked out of every school I had went to. Every single school that I went to, they kicked me out. Was that because in the back period you had that insurance? That it was, I, think, I think it was partly that. It was also, um, I was later on diagnosed with attention deficit disorder and that I think, I struggled at school. Academically, I struggled at school. And the classes were large, I didn't, I didn't enjoy school. And so because I couldn't keep up with the work, I used to just play. I used to make fun, fun of people. I used to fight with kids. I, I was just anything but work. And that doesn't go down too well in school or even when you become older in your life, if you're at work or if you're at school. Same rules apply. You can't, so you can't play about and you can't get into trouble. Uh, which is what I would always do. So I was always playing about, I was always being the class clown, I was trying to make people, you know, be Mr. Popular. That was my mission. My mission was really just to be as popular as I could be, which was a terrible strategy. Um, and it led to me getting kicked out. I probably got, I, I, I lost count, but it's, like, it's between nine to 11 schools that I was expelled from. Wow. And I always tell people the story, I won't tell you the whole story because of the time, but there's a school that I went to, my parents sent me to one boarding school. So a boarding school where you, 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 it's about, it was in Devon. So it was two or three hours away from London and you sleep in the school, you know, you see, you go back home basically like every eight weeks. Um, and my parents sent me there because they didn't know what else to do with me. And this school had an amazing reputation. And the year that I joined it, the owners of the school died and new owners took over the school. And it went from, it was considered one of the best schools in the whole of England. And it went from being the best to the worst within couple of years. In fact, you can Google it. If you Google Darsington Hall School Scandal, you'll find what happened to that school. So the, the, the year that I joined it, the school had a new philosophy, which was to make children responsible, give them freedom. So there were no school rules, no school rules at all. You could do whatever you wanted. That's why I always tell people, like, I started smoking my first cigarette when I was nine years old at school, in the maths class, because there were no rules. The other kids were smoking at nine years old. That's why I had my first cigarette there. So, nine years old, there were no rules. As long as you didn't break the law of the country, the law of the government, you could do anything. And uh, I think two years after that, I got kicked out of that school. So I, I even got kicked out of a school that had no school rules. They, they, they also kicked me out. So that continued, I failed all my exams. I didn't pass any exams when I was younger. Um, but around, between 16 and 18, I did start to wonder and look for my purpose in life. No, I grew up, I didn't believe in anything. I was an atheist, I didn't believe in any God, I didn't believe in anything. But between 16 and 18, I started going on a, on a, on a journey looking for answers. I said, well, why is it that we're here? And it was around 18 years old that I went to Speaker's Corner one day, and I listened to people talking. Hyde Park. Yeah, Hyde Park. And I listened to people talking, Christians, Jewish people, Buddhists, Hindus, everybody was there. And I listened to everybody and kept on going back to that park for about six months, uh, listening to people there until I became convinced the Muslim that was speaking, I became very convinced that Islam is the, the right faith for me and cut a long story short, I embraced Islam in Speaker's Corner um, 30, 30 years ago. 
And so that takes you, yeah, that's the answer to your question. Well, I think. So you, you converted about eight years ago. Yeah. And how did your family react to that? I mean, I didn't tell them at first. I kept everything, you know, to myself. I didn't want to tell them because I knew that they wouldn't be happy. And six months, about six months later, I let them know they weren't happy. Things got pretty bad between all of us. And in the end, they took me out for dinner one, one night and uh, gave me an ultimatum to essentially uh, leave praying, leave my faith, or leave, yeah, leave my faith or leave the family, one, one of the two. Wow. And, I, and I told them that as much as I love them, I have to love the one that created them more. And the one that created them and the one that created me told us that I have to pray, that I have to be a Muslim. And a Muslim is just one who submits to the will of God, does what God wants them to do. And God wants me to pray five times a day because they told me, no praying. You can't pray. I said, if you ask me to choose, then I have to choose prayer. I'm not going to leave my faith. And so they left me in a restaurant that night, and uh, I found myself homeless overnight for not a, not a very long period of time, but you know, a few months of, uh, of, um, of not having a home, and my father and mother disowning me and not having anything to do with me. I should say that that was many, many years ago. And today I'm very, very close to my mom and my dad. I love them so much. They love me, they're very proud of me. And uh, they, they've come you know, to Dubai. The short time I've been in Dubai now for coming up to a year, 10 months. Uh, they've already visited me twice over here. You know, we're, we're very, very close. I speak to them all the time. But at that time, it was terrible. It was as bad as you could imagine. Yeah, and, and how old were you when they kicked you out? 18. 18? Yeah, so I was wow. 18. Yeah. So that must have been a lot for you to take on back. That age. At the time it was. At the time it was because I came. From, I told you I came from a very privileged background, so I, I had everything that I wanted. I, all of it, if I if I wasn't wearing designer clothes, like today everybody wears designer clothes, but thirty years ago designer clothes were very different. You didn't find the label, for example, very rare to find the label on the outside of clothes. Uh, Emporio Armani, I remember, often had the label outside, but you know, Ralph Lauren, you sell on, you know, they the, the labels were so discreet. You wouldn't know that somebody was wearing designer clothes back then. But the person wearing it would know. Now, of course, the labels are out there. It's on the front of the t-shirts. I'm not knocking it. I'm saying it was very different. So back then, I grew up in a house where everything that we wore was you know, tailor-made, the, the highest quality. Everything was just easy for me. I never had to worry about money. And then I found myself one night, overnight, with nowhere to go. So it was, it was a lot. It was a lot to take on board. Fortunately. I was introduced to an amazing lady who, like me, became a new Muslim. She, I didn't know her before, but she also embraced Islam. She also had some challenges with her family, behaving in a similar way to, to mine. And the Imam in the mosque um, in Regent's Park, amazing, amazing uh, brother called Mahmoud Tayyib from Medina, one of the most beautiful human beings I ever met in my life, let me know that she was wanting to get married to somebody. Would I be interested in meeting her? We met three times. We had a chat, met three times, and we got married, and that was 29 years ago. And yeah, I was very fortunate because she had, unlike me, she had, she had, she had an apartment. She was, you know, she was taken care of. She was comfortable. And she was kind enough to uh, to take me in, and uh, we started our life together. So unbelievable. And that's the mother of your children. Yes, that's right. Yeah. God bless, mashallah. Yeah, I mean, you know, for a man, all he needs is a woman who believes in his potential. And his dreams, yeah. not for what he's got at the moment, and yeah. that's really rare to find. Yeah, no, definitely. That's why I thank, I thank, uh, I thank Allah. I thank, you know, the creator of the heavens and the earth for allowing me to marry such a, 
such an incredible woman because if it wasn't for her, if it wasn't for my wife, I can't imagine that I would be doing anything near to what I'm doing now, you know? So, you know, it sounds like, a, you know, a cliche and corny saying that behind every amazing man there's an even more incredible woman, but in my case it is true. She compliments me and fills all the gaps, I've got so many gaps, so many shortcomings, and uh, we're very, very different personalities, and I think that that coming together is, is a huge blessing. That Obviously, that's yeah. a flipping headache as well, to be honest, but um, that's life. But yeah, <laughs> that is I've got to keep it up, to be honest, <laughs> keep it real, obviously. I drive her mad, she drives me mad, but 29 years, happily married, and uh, she's, you know, the thought of going back to her at the end of each day, what keeps me going. So you actually got married at 18? I got married, I think I was actually, I think I touched 19 when I got married. Wow. Yeah, and I had my first child when I was 20. Wow. So I'm a grandfather now, 48. Yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. But I mean, how did that shape your mentality to have a child about the age of 20? Right. Big responsibility. Mm. You don't speak to your family anymore. You must right. Well, when I, when I got married, that's when things started to get a little bit better between me and my parents. And once the children came along, it helped things get even a little bit better. But it took, it took years for things to get to where they are now. But having, having a child at a young age, it didn't feel like I was having a child at a young age. It just felt like this was what life is. And it, it definitely forced me to start thinking differently. Because remember, my whole life I've been just a wild child. And I've you know, no sense of responsibility, no, no sense of you know, the value of money. Here I was for the first time you know, in a completely different situation. So I found myself, you know, anybody that knows London, especially back then, would know that Brixton at that time was a very, very rough part of London. Still. Okay, but not like it was then. So things, Brixton is as rough, just about as rough as you could get in South East London. I would, in my whole life, in my 18 years, I've never been to Brixton. In my life, I would never go to the South East. I would never go to South East London, ever. Never did it, just, I didn't even know it existed. I would never go there. But of course, once I was married, and I had a responsibility now of having to think about children. I was selling incense and perfumes in Brixton Market. I was, you know, putting stuff on supermarket shelves. I was, you know, I was grinding, doing anything that I could do to get 60 pounds at the end of the week to be able to put food on the table. And um, then when my second child came along, that's when I remember being, I was in Labrador Grove one day and I, I looked up and it was a very grey sky, you know? And London at that time, we didn't have CCTV like you have today. There was a lot of violence in those days. So it was very common for me. There weren't many people walking about London that looked like me with a beard, you know, at that time with a beard, with, with a, uh, a wife that was, you know, covered, you know, veiled. And so it was very common to get abuse, like really crazy abuse. When people talk about Islamophobia now, I'm sure it's much worse now. But back then it was insane. It wasn't, it was not unusual to go out and have people come up with, you know, weapons or pick up bottles, you know, and, 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 and try and, you know, start some, some type of craziness, you know, make fun of the way my wife was dressed, tell them that people would be driving past all their cars, tell me, hey, get out of our country, go back home. I'm like, where do you think I'm from? Like, I'm more English than you, but I just, you don't, I don't look at it. So obviously, you know, you're a little bit confused, but it was a very aggressive place. And there were, you know, there was a lot of violence that I had to go through in the, in the early days. I remember I was in that growth, I looked up at the gray sky. I was like, I'm so sick of the gray sky. You know, like, I want to see a blue sky. And that's when I said to my wife, why don't we just go and see another part of this world? 
and just go and see, you know, let's go and let's, let's, we don't need to save in, in London all my life. Going back to your story, mm. you know, obviously your family abandoned you because you're going to Islam, you get married at a young age, you had the first child, very young obviously, and then you face some criticism, mm. etc. etc. Did that affect your mental health? And have you even start thinking about this is not for me, this is not the life I wanted? It's harder than I thought. I never thought about that um, from a faith point of view, but I mean, I definitely, from those early years of being a new Muslim, not only was I, not only did I, did I have problems because of non-Muslims, there were also Muslims that were, you know, there were so many different groups of Muslims that wanted you to, to, to be with them, to, to, you know, have their way of thinking. It was a very crazy, crazy time. Like I said, there were a lot of, a lot of violent attacks, you know, so PTSD is something that I, until today, I've got and relate to people that say they've got PTSD because of the type of violent you know, things that took place in London in those days. So that anxiety that was caused by, you know, not one or two, but a, a number of violent confrontations in London. And me coming from a non-violent background, I wasn't brought, I wasn't brought up, you know, thinking about how to, how to, how to learn how to fight, how to, you know, to defend myself, that was anything. Never thought about that, walking around, you know, Hampstead. My, my, my part of London was basically Regent's Park, St. John's Wood, Hampstead, oh, Notting Hill Gate. Yeah, so people who don't know, these are the, the wealthy part of Holland Park. I love going to Holland Park, Golders Green. Like, these were like comfortable, safe parts of London. You didn't have to worry about anything. A bit like being in Dubai. That's why one of the things I love about being in this part of the world is it's, it's so safe. Um, so all of those things that happened affected my mental health to the point that I, I, was, I was not feeling at peace. Walking down, walking my own city, my city of London, that had been home for so many years and felt like home, was starting to no longer feel like home because of the way that people were behaving towards me. And that's when I just, as I said, I looked up and I just said, that's, you know, we're, we're, none of us are tied to one particular geographical location, right? And I think that that's something that I hope is part of my DNA now, part of my personality, which is you don't have to be a victim, right? So it's very easy to have a victim mentality for anything that's going on, right? Oh, this, you know, this, this person let me down and then this happened and this went wrong. But none of that helps anyone, right? None of that helps anyone. They say complaining is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it doesn't get you anywhere, right? It's just complaining and moaning. All it does is push you down. So you have to take responsibility for not what's happened to you, because you can't control what's happened to you, but you definitely have to be able to control the way that you respond to what's happened to you. And that's what, as I said, I decided to be proactive and um, let's, let's see where, let's see if all of the world is as cold and, you know, aggressive and depressing as London was for me at that time. And I love London. I mean, until that, I love London, but I didn't like what was happening in London to me and to my family uh, at that particular time, which is why we decided to, to see what else was out, you know, see the other parts of the world. Oh, that's really inspiring to you. I mean, you're the perfect example of that equation, which is, uh, you're not who you are, but you make, you know, like the 90 plus 10 equal right. 100. Right. So we are who, how we react to yes. this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of people would have been, that's it, not for me, mm. I quit everything, go back to my family, say sorry. Yeah, no, that was never an option for me. That was never an option for me, because obviously when you're talking also about faith, you're talking about what, no matter what your faith is, if you have faith in something, you're talking about something that's deep, right? It's a deep season. You're not thinking, you know, it's true faith. You're not thinking about 
you know, it's just someone that I'm interested in, someone I like. It, it's an unshakable conviction. Like if I was to tell you now, your t-shirt is blue, or let's say white, you're never gonna accept that from me. You'll never accept it from me because you have an unshaking belief in the fact that what you're wearing is black. No matter, if I tell you it's white, it's white, it's white, it's not gonna make any difference. So that was the same with me. You can tell me I'm wrong, I'm wrong, I'm wrong, it make any difference. I don't care. If you so so about self-belief. Yeah, self, self-belief, but and, also and faith, that's what keeps you going. Faith and self-awareness and, and, and the, the, the awareness and the acceptance that you, by doing what you're doing, by doing what I did, I'm definitely now going to face problems. There's no way of avoiding it. So you have to be able to acknowledge what I'm doing is definitely going to bring some problems my way, but it's worth it. And that you can apply to just about everything. There's risk and reward, right? Anything you do, whether it's business, whether it's having fun, anything, crossing the road, there's risk and there's reward. The reward of crossing the road is I'm going to get where I need to get on time. The risk is I might get hit by that car. So you have to weigh everything up. So that's the same thing. You know, I had to make a decision and weigh things up when it came to the decisions I was making, knowing everything that I was doing was upsetting my family and going against centuries of tradition and the way that things be done. And by doing what I did, I created a new generation, a generation of Muslims. And that is something that in my bloodline has never happened before and can never be changed. It's done as a permanent thing, right? So because of that, you just know you're doing something that can't be undone. No matter what happens in the future, you can't go back and change what happened 30 years ago. And you can't go back and change the five children that I now have. And that is not insignificant. That's significant, you know? So you've got to be able to accept that there are repercussions to what you're doing, but balance the risk and the reward. So I watched a video for you earlier, and you talked about that story of the hat. So you wanted to have to wear that hat. Yeah. <laughs> and there was a brother who told you, no. You yeah, he went to the bookshop there. He was like, no, 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 you can't. Yeah, that's right. Why? <laughs> Ignorance. See, there's, the, there's, a, there's a kind of like a Muslim cap. Some people call it a kufi. I used to, you know, it's like a white, usually you see it like a white embroidered. So call it okay, yeah. So I always liked that, especially when I was, you know, younger. I was, the year before I became Muslim, I was listening to a lot of rap, a lot of hip hop, and a lot of people wearing it, like it was fashionable as well. So I really wanted to wear one after I became Muslim. And I remember I went to go and pick one up, and I was like, yes, time has come. And he was like, no, 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 bro, no. How much Quran do you know? And I was like, what? <laughs> he said, how much Quran do you know? No, no, you can only wear this when you know a lot of the Quran. Please, please. I was like, oh, well, I don't know. I was like, oh, all right. Bit of a disappointment, but my time will come. But it actually believe. Yeah, what it means. Yeah, it actually believe what you said. Yeah. And I said, you know, no, you cannot do that. You can't learn more Quran. Yeah, yeah. In order to wear that out. Yeah, you should, yeah. Some of the things I heard, you know, as a new Muslim. <laughs> That's shocking. Yeah, but, but people, again, people probably had good intentions, but there's so much ignorance in the world. That's why I always tell people, if I looked at the Muslims, I would never become a Muslim. If I looked at the behavior of the Muslims. I wouldn't have become a Muslim because the behavior of people, of any faith, but let's talk about Muslims, the behavior of Muslims doesn't necessarily represent the faith of Islam, depending on how those Muslims behave. So you could have a Muslim who's a wonderful example of the faith of Islam, right? He represents what's in the Quran, he represents the example of the Prophet, perfect example. And you have another Muslim who's a terrible example of what Islam is. He's harsh to people. He treats people badly. He's, you know, uh, not, you know, his manners are bad. This is, you know, far removed from Islam. But they're both Muslims, so you can't judge Islam by the behavior of the Muslims. You have to judge Islam by what you find inside of the Quran and 
by the example of the prophets, all the prophets, of course, uh, that were sent. So that's that's how you judge Islam. We'll say, but if I was you back in the day, mm -hmm. at that young age, I'd have been like, what? I don't want that religion anymore. Did ever like extremists like that make you doubt a religion or have a second thought about it? Honestly, mm -hmm. no. They made me doubt people. They made me doubt people. So I met a lot of extremists in the early days. People that wanted me to get on a plane and go and fight in Afghanistan, or go and fight in this country, or go and fight. You know, the extreme ideologies that people have. Actually, people like that. Yeah, yeah, of course. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, in the early days, I met everybody. Everybody was, you know, I met people that wanted me to 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 embrace spiritualism and. And, and stay up, you know, three nights, you know, chanting the names of Allah for three nights straight, and then they say, if you do it, you'll see a vision. I'm like, wait, if you stay up for three, I used to rave. I know if you stay up for three days, you're going to start seeing things no matter what, if you're sleeping, right? I have people, everybody was trying to get me to follow their way, but I was fortunate enough to have good people around me to make clear to me that Islam is simple. And if you want to judge whether somebody's Islam is correct or not, you look and you see, does it go with the Qur'an? Does it go with the example of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him? Does it go with the example of his companions? And if it does, then we walk that way. We can adopt that, that way of behaving and that way of thinking. But when you find people doing things which don't go in line with the Qur'an, the, the example of the Prophet and the example of the uh, companions that were with him at that time, then you know, wait, this is, this is, something's off here. The companions didn't do this, the Prophet didn't do that, what? This is some, this is something's not right, and I was fortunate enough to understand that in the early days. But that didn't mean that people didn't try incredibly hard to get me to adopt their way of thinking. But you know, thank God, uh, you know, I understood what Islam was. You know, Islam is simple. I said people make things complicated. Hello, I just want to talk to you quickly about this beautiful massage gun from Game Hunter Store GHS. What I love about this absolute beautiful tool that is so light on the hand and I can take it with me wherever I go. I love the fact that it's got a touch screen and 30 different level of speeds and vibration so you can adjust that depending on how you view each day. I love taking it with me wherever I go and I love using it after a heavy session at the gym or even after a long day at the office. What I also love about it is the battery life. It lasts it lasts about eight to ten hours of consistent use. Not to mention, right, it comes with this beautiful case and it's got six different type of heads. You can each switch them up depending on how you really feel and which one is you feel better for you for that giving day. Wait, don't go. They've also got this mini massage gun, which is so insane, guys. Look at that. It's literally the size of an iPhone. How insane is that? It's so light. You don't feel like you're actually holding something in your hand. This is my favorite. I love taking it with me wherever I go. I can literally fit it with my pocket if I want to. Guys, if you like what you're seeing, you can get 10% off by watching this episode. The discount code is TIC10. Use that when you go on GameHunterStore.com. So uh, you talked about leadership, mm. and it's really important. There's a lot of, there's a lot of leaders out there but they don't know how to lead. Yeah. Hence why you've started your business mm. just on leadership. Mm. So tell us a little bit about your business and what sure. does it exactly do? Okay. So I'm an outsider. I watch your social media content, which yeah. are amazing, by the way. Thank you. But like you said, people know you from so many different things. Yes. But you're specialized in leadership. Yeah. And that's what you work, that's what you do for a living. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's what I've been doing for, for a long time. Um, so 
I started the organization to I, when I got when I fell in love with leadership I started to see that if you do the research on leadership like you should do the research on leadership if you're thinking about getting training for yourself or for your company like anything you should do your research and a simple google search why do leadership development programs fail you'll find that leadership development programs aren't effective for a number of reasons despite the fact that billions are invested every year across the world on leadership development programs that don't produce results there are not there are a number of reasons and when I was working in leadership and I worked for leadership companies, I, I realized that what, would, what we're doing for companies, we're really not giving them you know, a return on investment that can be quantified. We're not, really not giving them something that's necessarily having a real impact. There's a big difference between raising awareness. So, for example, this webinar, we're, we're raising people's awareness about a number of different things, right? We're raising awareness. But to change behavior, it takes time, right? It takes time. So... I realized that there was a gap in the market where people often were getting off-the-shelf leadership development programs. And leadership development programs, like a, like a good tailor-made suit, need to be tailor-made to have a real impact on the organization. Customize on each individual. Absolutely. So, so what we do, we use data. So we always say that our, our programs are data-driven leadership development programs, meaning we start everything with psychometric assessments to really... Look at the gaps that exist in organizations. So if you have a company, so look, at I need to get my middle management you know, to the next level. So, okay, let's see what we're dealing with first. Before we go and give you a leadership development program, and often people see me on social media, they're like, please just come and train us. Please just come and do something for us. I say, look, that would be absolutely... That's like going to a doctor and saying to a doctor, you know, doctor, I'm sick. And he says, yep, absolutely, prescription. What? I haven't even told you what's wrong with me. You know, you haven't, done, you haven't diagnosed anything. You just, how could you know what's wrong with me? How could you know what I need? unless you really examine me. So that's the case. So with leadership development, we tell people, okay, wait, let's assess everybody through validated psychometric assessments so we can see as individuals, but also as a team, where are the gaps? Where are the common gaps in your team? Because we don't want to create a leadership development program with a bunch of stuff that your team doesn't need, right? Your team might be really strong in customer service. They might be really strong in uh, motivating their team. They might be really strong in whatever it might be. We don't need to focus on that. Let's create a tailor-made leadership development program really suited to what gaps are currently in place amongst your team. So that's what we do. We, we use psychometric assessments to see where the gaps are. And based on that, we use an international uh, network of, of subject matter experts all around the globe to design tailor-made leadership development programs that typically go anywhere from three months to 12 months, where we take people through a journey of learning about leadership, learning about different leadership competencies, but most importantly, and I believe this is really what, what, you know, why, we're, why we're successful, one of the reasons we're successful, is everything that we do in the training relates directly to what you're doing at work. So for, if I just give you something about motivation, how to motivate your team and blah, 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 if I give you just information, what will happen is, like most people, you'll leave. You'll say, oh, that was really fun. I really enjoyed it. You'll go back saying it was great. You'll go back to 200 emails, a line manager that couldn't care less about what you've done. And before you know it, you won't have had a chance to implement what you've learned. And research shows if you're not implementing what you've learned within five to six days of learning it, you're probably going to forget about 70% of it. And you might as well then say, like most people, I may, might as well not have even gone on that training. I mean, if, I, if it's your money, right? Imagine now it's your company and you're going to send 10 people for training. 
And I tell you beforehand, okay, just so you know, you're going to pay us X amount and I guarantee you they're going to forget 70% of it within a week. Do you still want to go ahead with the training? Like nobody's going to say they do, right? But this is what's happening because people trust people. And that's okay. But you need to make sure that whoever you're dealing with really you know, has credibility to them when it comes to the academic side of leadership. You know, what, how do people benefit from leadership development programs? So it's a long way of saying <laughs> that when people start a program with us, we always say what takes place in the training is not as important as what happens after the training. It's all about what you do. So when, when uh, I might deliver a workshop for you and your organization on motivation, right? So I deliver that for you all through the workshop. I'm saying to you, guys, how are you going to use this? How are you going to use it tomorrow at work? How can we use this technique? So I might give you three or four or five techniques. We do some role playing. We have fun. But I'm going to be saying, right, at the end of today, you're going to commit to an action plan. You're going to commit to taking one of the ideas, just one at least, one of the ideas that you like today, you choose. You're going to implement it. I want you to write down, when are you going to implement it? How are you going to implement it? What do you think will be the return of investment by, by doing this particular thing? So that when you leave the workshop, the training doesn't stop. It really just starts. Then you're going to go back into work commit with a commitment to use what you've learned. Two weeks later, I'll come back in as a coach and say, meet with everybody. How's it going? Did you, you, know, did you implement it? Did you not implement it? What challenges do you face? And we always get your line manager to be involved in the program. They have to sign off on everything that you do. So every leadership competency that we cover you can only move to the next one by implementing what you've learned at work. And that has to be val uh, validated by the line manager. So in that way, we know that we're making a meaningful impact on an organization. I never would work with an organization that just says, oh, just come in and just, just deliver something. Oh, I'm, not, I'm not DHL, you know? I want to make a difference in people's lives. I mean, leadership is the most important thing when it comes to business. Yeah. And as a CEO and founder, I find it really challenging and to be a better leader every day. Mm. You learn every day. Definitely. And as you go in, go in with business and mm. managing people. And one of the toughest things I always find is managing people. Mm. And what I've done was, is trying to hire people that better than me. Yes. At certain sure. areas and aspects in the business. Mm. So instead of hiring Big Dave from around the corner, because mm. I know him for X, Y, Z number <laughs> of years, and I feel sorry for him. Maybe yeah. he's good at his job. And, you know, he knows what he's doing, but I can go out there and hire people who are better than me, where I can learn something out Smart. from them. And that's what really helped me. So one thing for me, I find mm. in leadership is managing people. Mm. And when you compare it to football, <laughs> you're a football fan, yeah. right? <laughs> so if you, if, you, if you look at Liverpool, mm. they've got a fantastic manager. Mm -hmm. He came in, average squad, he turned them into champions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then you've got a great manager, he mm. might go to Barcelona, mm -hmm. Right, superstars, mm. fantastic players, and he fails. Mm. So, leadership is quite important. What do you think is the most challenging bit in leadership? Most challenging thing about leadership is what you see when you look in the mirror. You. You're the most challenging part of being a good leader because you are the person who's getting in your own way. Your ego is the thing that's stopping you from making decisions. You're... Your, your lack of confidence is the thing that will get you into all types of problems. Your inability to make decisions when they need to be made in a timely manner. Your own emotions getting the better of you can have an impact on everything. So whilst there is so much and you couldn't really pinpoint a specific part necessarily of what's the most important part of leadership, 
the biggest challenge to leaders is their own, their own self. Because if they're not developing themselves, or they're, okay, so if they're not developing themselves, they're always going to fall short. And you said, you said a really good thing, a great thing. Leaders will learn by leading. So every day you said we're, we're learning. Every, that's how leadership, leadership is learned through leading. Leading and learning, leading and learning. You see, some people say experience is the best teacher. But that's really, you know, it's not, it's not accurate. Because if that was the case, you wouldn't see many, many elderly people who make very bad decisions. It's not like we get to an old age of, oh, 60 years old, all of a sudden, wow, everything I do is just perfect, you know? No, it's not the case at all. But experience that we learn from is probably the best teacher. So when we lead, we make mistakes. If you're not self-aware, you don't see those mistakes. So if you were to say what's the biggest challenge to leaders, I would say their own ego. What's the most important thing for a leader? If you force me to pick something, I'd probably say self-awareness. I absolutely agree with you mm. when you said about ego. Because mm. one thing that helped me develop the business and take it to the next level mm. was putting my ego on the side, mm. putting it in the bin. <laughs> That's it. I don't need my ego anymore. I'm not the greatest at what I do, mm. but how can I get better? Yes. Hiring better people than me. Yeah, absolutely. You know, who's been, who, who've been in the market for mm. 25 years plus. Right. So I can learn from mm. and can help me develop the business into the next level. Amazing. All right, I might have to pay them more. Right. <laughs> <laughs> or I might have to give them a share yeah. or equity of the business. Yeah. But it is what it is. Yes. I mean, you're not going to be the best in your field if you don't have the best in your team. Absolutely. So it's like a football team. You know, let's say you're going to play the semi-final of mm. the final of the Champions League tomorrow night, mm. who are you going to have in goal? Yeah. <laughs> who are you going to have <laughs> in your defense? It's true. Who are you going to have as your number nine? Mm. So I've learned that. At the start, I was like always looking for the cheap, low-cost mm. route where I can get, you know, hire someone. They're good. They've got six, seven mm. years of experience, mm. but they're not the best. Yeah, I think that that's definitely, definitely accurate. And at the same time, there, it might be that you... Can, you know, you can at this particular juncture, you can only. A lot of people will be watching this, they only have a certain budget. They can only afford a certain level of either investing in training or to hire certain people. There's a level. So it's all about then what can you do with those people? So I always remember Steve Jobs. I think it was Steve Jobs. He said, when we first developed the first, you know, the first computer, right, from, from Apple, when we developed that, IBM's uh, budget for research and development. I forget the exact number, was something like 100 times more than ours. So IBM's, in their budget for research and development, minimum, it was, you have to find the quote, but it was minimum of 100 times more than what Steve Jobs had. But he said, innovation has nothing to do with the dollars that you have. It's about your mindset and being innovative and coming up with these new ideas. So a lot of the time, we might have limited resources but what can you do with those resources, right? So Gary Vee said something brilliant, right? When people said to him, oh, a particular social media strategy didn't work. He said, listen, there's a basketball. Put this basketball in my hand. What's the return on investment? Zero. He didn't know how to play basketball. Can't do anything with it. Get that same basketball. Put it in LeBron James's hand. Put it in Stephen Curry's hands. What's the return on investment now? A billion dollars. It's not the basketball. It's how that basketball is used. Who's using that basketball? So it's the same thing. You might have a team, you give them an, a manager or a leader, he'll get a certain amount out of those people. But you give a really effective leader to lead over those people, you develop somebody into becoming an amazing leader, 
And it'll be like the basketball analogy. They can get so much out of the people that they have. So it's about, you know, innovation as well, innovation. which is also key. Yeah, but some people might be watching this right now and they're thinking, I've got a low budget. Um, I want to start this business. I've got to hire people from FIFA, mm. or freelancers. Mm -hmm. And I struggle to select the best in the business. Yeah. And always in the losing money, wasting time, wasting money. I'm giving up. What can I do? There's no... I can't test these people out better. And now you got to remember, most of the people work remotely. Yes. So you don't work closely with them and you don't really see how they actually like. Yeah. So how can you lead in a remotely working environment with a low cost, managing freelancers, mm. et cetera, et cetera? I mean, I, I've been in a position before where, this was way before COVID, where I was responsible for remotely leading 16 teams in, in 14 different locations back in Saudi Arabia. Wow. All right? And leading remotely, leading virtually is, is a challenge. Working with people, if you have to source people via Fiverr and so on and so forth, is also a challenge. But most of your time has to go into finding that right person. And most of the time, freelancers will allow you to sample their work for free. I've always, when I work with people, the, the ones that stand out, they say to me, let me do something for you for free. Let me do something for you for free so then you can see the quality of my work, right? Fiverr might not be the best example to deal with. I'll be, most of my experience hasn't, hasn't been great me with too. that. <laughs> and that's why when I set up my company... I'm incredibly fortunate to have a very talented family and, you know, they're all grown up. None of my children are children. They're all adults. So, you know, my son's in charge of uh, the, the brand management. Shout out to Naz. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> He'll like that. Doesn't deserve it all the time. No, he does. Does an amazing job. In, in all seriousness, my daughter, she's responsible. She's a social media manager. My, my, one of my sons is a quality manager. Another one of my sons is a, a operations director. Um, you know, it's a family business. And so that... It's not a family business because they're family. It's because they have the skill sets that are needed for me to be able to work with them and to do something special. I want to just stop you right there. Mm. So you've got your kids, you know, managing your business. Mm. Everyone's got a particular rule, mm. right? How does that interfere with parenting, with, you know, being a father at the same time? <laughs> so probably, let's, say, let's say your son <laughs> does something really bad at what he's supposed to do. Yeah. Do you speak to him like a father our manager it's a really good question so when we first started having meetings putting the business together i was guilty of going into those meetings yes i'm the ceo but i went in really with my dad hat on so the way i was talking to to everybody was not the same i wasn't managing or leading them the way that i would normally lead a team it was really like all right abdullah come on all right you can do better than come on now you can do better than that i would never talk to somebody that i was leading in that way there's that i know is going to demotivate them and then he'd get i could see him getting frustrated in the meeting i'm thinking oh, typical and then i'm thinking wait what are you doing this is <laughs> you can't lead unless you lead right that is a quote you can't lead unless you can lead. You have to lead. It's as simple as that. You can't sit in a leadership position and think you can lead. You have to lead by doing, by leading people. So I realized, wait, I have to think about everybody now in the same way as if I was sitting down with people that were not family members. And that was a challenge. That was a challenge for me. But the rewards of having family involved in the business delegating to them, watching them grow, seeing them become excited about what we're doing, that's far more rewarding 
than any challenges or feeling uncomfortable with the fact that, you know, I've got to constantly remind myself that I, if I treat them like my family, we're going to fail. I have to lead them like I'm leading. And inshallah, God willing, we'll just continue to succeed. And so far, so good. Because they, they, I'm very fortunate. Like I said, they all do a phenomenal job. You know, if I delegate something, it, it, it gets done and it gets done to such a high degree of quality. That's why I think there's so much people that have family businesses. I was very inspired early on by people that had family businesses. I used to work for a company called Obekan in Saudi Arabia. And the engineer, Abdullah Obekan, was one of my real mentors. And I learned so much from him and family businesses and Ahmed bin Dawood, you know, back in Saudi Arabia. Such an example of incredible family businesses, you know, that, that, that go from strength to strength. And that's why I really am passionate and, and, and believe strongly. And if you can do it, I think ha- having a family business is a wonderful thing, you know. But it's still, it's obviously going to be a challenge, you know. And have you ever had to punish someone if they didn't do their job properly? <laughs> <laughs> Honestly speaking, because obviously they're, they're your sons that's, and your kids. That's, that, that's, that's interesting. And Until, how, do you, how do you come about it as well? No, if I, if I was to, if I was to, no, I, I don't think, I mean, hopefully I'd never have to punish anybody. I mean, even, you know, but <laughs> if I ever had to do anything there was, you know, if there was any question about performance, I hope that I always deal with it the same way that I would if it was anybody else, you know, which is by talking to people and, and helping them. And, and, and I always tell people, hurt is not something we, we ever want to do. When you speak to somebody, never, never, never allow yourself to hurt people if you can avoid it. Keep in your mind, help, not hurt. Always, every time you open your mouth, help people. Don't hurt people. And who's that going to apply to more than your own your own flesh and blood, you know? But that's my, that's my take. If you ask them, they might tell you something completely different, you know? <laughs> no, I, mean, I don't think so, though. No, God bless you, mashallah. Uh, Thank you. Bro. I watch your content, and I see you, how you guys born together. Yeah, we're very close. It's mashallah beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. God Thank bless you. you. Thank and you. I wish you nothing but success. Thank you. Uh, what's your biggest lesson in leadership throughout this long journey? In three words. Don't burn bridges. Wow. Don't Burn Bridges was advice that was given to me by one of my, the mentor, Khalil Campbell, who's the, the, the guy who I thought was going to terminate me when I first got into leadership when I did such a terrible job, but he, he actually taught me what leadership was. And I learned so many things from him, but one of the biggest things I learned from him was don't burn bridges. You know, whether it's with the, you know, it's very easy, by the way, when we talk about not burning bridges, very easy to think of, oh, with our line managers, right? Don't burn bridges with my line, the person that I report to, my boss. Always keep relationships good. It applies with everybody, the secretary, the receptionist, you right? Anybody, because that person that you worked with 15 years ago may have just been a receptionist then. Now, today, they might be a CEO, might be a general manager. They could be operations manager. You don't know. So don't burn bridges. Always make it so that no matter how the relationship comes to an end, as all relationships inevitably do, you want it to end in the best way that's possible. It might, be, it might not be perfect. You might have had an argument with somebody. It might not have ended well. I've, I've ended positions. There are people that I've worked with that I've walked away from, positions that I've left. I've handed in my resignation and, and, and walked away. But I, I believe I always ended things in a way that allows me to look that person again in the face and say, ah, oh, shame it didn't work out, right? But at least we're good, you know? And don't burn bridges. If you apply that to everybody you work with, it produces in you a desire to want to make people happy because i don't want to burn. for example now i don't want to burn bridges with you i don't want to burn bridges with him i don't want to burn bridges with anyone i always want to keep relationships strong because relationships 
our currency. It's always about ending things in good terms. Mm. At the end of the day, it's a business. Yeah. It's not a, you know, it's not a playground. You've got to do what's best for the interest. Yeah. For the business, mm. you know, what's best interest for the business. Yeah. But sometimes you deal with um, mindset victims. Okay. Right? People, you hand them a task, they don't do it, they mm -hmm. blame everything and anything about mm -hmm. it. And, you know, they they always scared of um, speaking about it. So okay. when you try to communicate with them, look, you've done X, Y, Z, I don't like it. Mm -hmm. And you always try, as a leader, you always think about how you can deliver your message mm -hmm. so you don't hurt them, A. B, so you can express yourself in the best possible right. way. C, make your message clear. Yes. Respectfully. Yeah. But then sometimes you get to deal with sensitive people. Even if you do your best mm -hmm. in the best possible way and scenario, they don't take it in the right way. Mm -hmm. and, and perhaps they might overreact or, mm -hmm. or they get sad or mm. sensitive or start blaming everything and everything. Right. How do you deal with these kind of people? What you do is you take one of my workshops and then I would... <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 but really, uh, uh, something that can help people seriously is when thinking about these type of things, I find it's very effective to focus on what Andy Bounds, who's, if, if, you, if you don't know Andy Bounds, get Andy Bounds' books, Google him, watch him on YouTube, Britain's, you know, uh, awarded Britain's top uh, business trainer of the year, you know, repeatedly, just an incredibly powerful communicator and salesperson. And Andy Bounds always talks about when communicating with people to think about what he calls the afters. What does it mean by the afters? So, for example, he always gives the analogy. Nobody wants to buy toothpaste, and he says, nobody wants to buy toothpaste. They don't want the, the plastic. They don't want the white stuff that comes out the tube. They want the after effect they get from using the toothpaste, right? They want fresh breath and clean teeth, all right? Nobody wants... Uh, for example, to go and you know, necessarily see an accountant, all right? because they want to sit down with an accountant, but they know by seeing an accountant, all of their taxes are going to be done and they've got nothing to worry about with the law. They want the after effect of that thing. So likewise, when it comes to anything else that you're doing, when you talk to somebody, think to yourself, what do I want the after, after effect to be from talking to this person? What do I actually want? So my goal of talking to this person is what? When I finish talking to them, what do I want them to think or do differently. And that's where you start. So, for example, I know that Abdulaziz, I'm going to talk to him about this issue. It's going to be loads of drama. He always misunderstands me. He's probably going to get emotional. This could go anywhere, anywhere. But what I want Abdulaziz to do at the end of it is to make sure that he always sends the report at the end of the working day on the last day of the week. That's the bottom line. That's what I need him to do. Right. That's my starting point. I need, Ahmed to, I need Abdulaziz to do that. Then you think about, okay, what am I going to say to Abdulaziz? Making sure that everything you're doing keeps coming back to that one point and you're focused on the after effect of when he leaves my office, this is what I need him to do. And then you can think about all the other stuff, starting with the positives before getting to the negatives and so on and so forth. But of course, a large part of it is down to personalities. We all have different personalities, right? So for example, if you're a very analytical person, you like facts. You like data to, you know, when we're speaking. You don't like somebody to speak to you with a loud voice. You don't like to, you know, pressure to be put on you. So if I need to uh, basically talk to you about your performance, I'm not going to talk in general terms. If I want to be an effective leader, I need to speak to you according to what your personality is. So if I know your personality, I know you're an analytical personality, I'm going to make sure I say to you, on Tuesday, 
this happened. On Friday, this happened. On Sunday, this happened. If you're an expressive person, somebody who's not an analytical and I'm talking to you, you don't, I know data is just going to frustrate you. You're going to see it as an attack. So I'm not going to talk to you about specifics. I'm going to say, listen, there have been a few examples. You know what I'm talking about. There have been a few examples. But if I'm talking to analytical, I'm going to talk like that. Analyticals, if I know you're an analytical, I'm going to, as, your, as your manager, I'm not going to make my voice loud. Because analyticals don't like loud voices. If I'm going to say to you, look, I need answers. I want you to give me a solution to this problem. If I know you're an analytical, I'm going to say, how does three days sound to you? If I know that you're an expressive type of person, right, some, or a driver, different type of personality style, then I'll be able to say to you, all right, listen, I want you to come back to me tomorrow and give me a solution. You have to be able to talk to people according to who they are, not who you want them to be, because we're all different. We're all different. We're all unique. So you've got yeah. to always communicate with, with each individual differently. Absolutely. Leadership is such a massive Massive, massive, massive. For sure. Problem. And always, when I get asked this question, oh, which company should I invest in? Or which stock should I buy? Mm. Always say people, ignore the product. Okay. Think about who, who's the leader. Mm. Interesting. Because at the end of the day, you've got to invest in people. Right. Interesting. And I've got this written in my whiteboard here. Mm. It says, invest in people based on results. Right. I saw that, yeah. Right. And because when you invest in great leaders, mm. You, like, for example, let's go 10, 20 years ago. Mm. If you invested in Apple yes. because you believe in the vision of Steve Jobs mm. and you were right about it mm. and you know how he thinks, his mindset, mm. his work ethics, you'd have made a fortune now. Wow. <laughs> so yeah. if I were to invest now, I, I, I wouldn't just say, think mm. about the product or the solution they provide. Mm. The solution is great, okay. Mm. But who's the leader? It's interesting. Because if the leadership is great, yes. this company will go to places. Right. Right, very and interesting. Ultimately, the other way around. Yeah. So like leadership that. is a really, really important topic. And I like that. I made sure I did one of my models in my, in my master's yeah. in leadership and consultancy. Oh, right. Yeah, because uh, leadership is important. Absolutely. And if, if you want to strive in your business and do great things, you got to be a great leader, Absolutely. like you say. Absolutely. Now, I, I want to jump into my next question. Mm -hmm. So obviously, you're doing, you're doing different things, mm -hmm. creating content, mm -hmm. got your business, mm -hmm. lots of things, which is impressive. How do you stay motivated and have you ever thought about quitting? <laughs> Honestly speaking. Never. I never think about quitting. It never even comes into my mind. I mean, not, not, not in a sense, okay, this is not paying off. I don't think you're like that. But in a sense, for instance, sometimes, you know, you're doing your hard, you, you, your best day in and day out, mm. and you're not getting the kind of results you're expecting. Mm. And, you know, the hardest thing in life is giving your best every single day. Mm -hmm. Every single day. Getting out of bed, mm. giving your best, but instead you're not getting nothing in return. Mm. And to go back the next day and do the same thing. And especially with content creation, mm. it can be mentally draining. Right. And social media, because people always expect you. As we all know, content creation is really hard. And mm. people always expect you to smile. And it's mentally draining. So have you ever thought about quitting social media? Okay. I'm not talking about your business. I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah. So um, I think in the early days of social media, I was, you know... I mean, the good th for me, I was, I was fortunate. I always only ever made content about things that I was passionate about, right? If I'm passionate about something, I make content about it. Simple as that. People ask me, what's your content? It's whatever I'm passionate about. Typically, that's my faith, positivity, leadership. It used to be food. Now it's more fitness. What, I, what I'm positive about, I make content about. But once I got, you know, millions on TikTok and, and the other platforms started, you know, doing well, I, I lost the... Uh, I discovered the importance of not feeling that I need to post content 
all the time. So when you see me not posting content, it's because I don't feel like posting content. It's as simple as that. Now, from the business point of view, when it comes to the business page, right? Afia Partners, at Afia Partners, just for anyone that needs to know, we can put it, put it there for people. But when you, when you uh, look at the business page, that's different. Business page, we're going to batch content. We'll record everything on a day or two. We'll put it out on a daily basis. That, that can't stop, all right? But when you're talking about my own social media content, when you see me not posting, I haven't posted a few days now on TikTok, if you have a look, it's because I don't want to. I don't feel, there's nothing, I don't feel like smiling in front of the camera. So if I don't feel like smiling in front of the camera, I can't, I can't pretend to smile. It's very difficult. People will see through that. So I think it's really important with anyone who's on social media, pace yourself. It's a marathon, not a sprint. One video is not going to make you and one video is not going to break you. You might have a video that goes viral. You will have many or most that don't. You may make a crap video, but it ends up doing really well. And you may put your heart and soul into another video and it gets a few hundred likes. Social media is not, as much as possible, you need to not take it too personally. Look at somebody like Gary Vee. Gary Vee, if you look at his TikTok page, he's got videos that get millions and millions. He's got other videos that get like 10,000 views. 10,000 views when you've got the amount of followers that Gary Vee has, that's like me putting something out there and getting 10 views. It's terrible. It doesn't stop him. It doesn't stop him because if you're putting content out and looking for the response, you will stop really quickly. But you put out content because you're happy to put content. I put out content that my kids would tell me, oh God, please don't put that out. That's so cringy. Like it's real, really embarrassing to us. You're, you know, talking about how much you love food or please don't put that out. And I said, look, I love this video. Look, I just, I'm happy. I'm putting it out there. And I got millions and millions of views. In fact, I blew up on TikTok by accident. I didn't try and get big on TikTok. It just, it just happened, right? And again, it's just about authenticity. So if you feel that it's bringing you down, pause. Don't keep doing something that's upsetting you. You know, it's a dangerous thing. Absolutely. Take a break. Pause for a minute. Definitely. Reflect. Definitely. Go on a holiday. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Because, you know, what you find these days is people just post for the sake of posting. Yes. To keep up yes. with the pace. Yes. Like you've said a good point. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Definitely. Take your time. But when it comes to small businesses mm. and businesses that they're just starting up, yeah. it's really important for them to put content every day and not to overthink their content and not to try and make it perfect because i always tell people your pursuit of perfection will prevent you from performing right so you're 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 so focused on it being perfect that you're not putting out any content or you're only putting out the most polished perfect content people don't really care about how polished it is they care about one thing am i getting value are you entertaining me are you educating me am i learning something from you and 99 percent of the people might not like your content but that's okay, because you're not making it for them. You're making it for people who enjoy what you're doing. But you know what I've noticed as well? Like, people's attention span mm. has become so, so short mm. that, I don't know, maybe it's because the social media algorithms, they have programmed our brain. If you watch a video, and within the three, four, <laughs> f- first uh, three, four seconds, mm. if you don't like it, skip. Yes. Next one. Yeah. Next one. Yeah. And that's why you see all these Instagram now is doing the same thing, trying to copy TikTok. Yes. Right? That's yeah. right. And, and people were like, make Instagram Instagram right. again. Yeah. And Instagram are forcing creators and business, mm. small business to post videos yeah. and reels. That's right. As we shall call them. That's right. And, and you know, if, your videos got to be short. And if yeah. it's not entertaining and catchy mm. from the first, within the first three, four seconds, yeah. people are going to skip it. They're not right. going to watch it. Right. And so people' like attention spans become really, really short and small. Yeah, yeah. They don't like your content within the first 
three, four seconds. Mm. That's it. But that's okay. But that's but again, that's okay. It's okay because if you're putting out enough content, you have enough chances to engage people. But if you're only putting out a piece here and a piece there, you're limiting your chance of getting somebody to stay for more than a few seconds. You're just giving yourself one chance. Give yourself 10 chances, 20 chances, 30 chances, because once you put out that piece of content that people do stay on for more than a few seconds and forward it to somebody or save it or whatever they do with it or comment on it, that's when the algorithm kicks in and that's when your content starts getting shown to more people. The fact is, most people, I always tell myself, most people have no interest in anything I've got to say. But I'm not there trying to get those people. I'm trying to find people who like what I bring to the table. And if they don't, that's absolutely fine because this is the world we live in, right? Not everybody's for everyone. Not everything's for everybody. It's okay. It's okay if you don't like my content. That's absolutely fine. I hope you find something that you do like because I'm not looking for you necessarily. But people, I just think it comes down to what Gary Vee said as well about not being selfish with your content. People make content a lot of times for themselves. It should be for the people that are consuming it, right? You're giving value. What value am I giving people? What reason am I giving people to watch me, right? What am I, what's in it for them? It's all about what's in it for me. So when you're, you know, it's, if you give value, then if you give value for free, as Gary Vee again says, people will pay for exclusivity. And that's what I found. You can give out value, value, value for free, but there'll be somebody out there that says, wow, I wish you could come and train our company. I wish we could get you exclusively. And that's where the business side comes in, you know? So you just got to keep on going. But the moment that it's upsetting you, take a break. You know, one of, one of well, Naz, for example, one of, my, one of my children, he's very successful on, on social media. He's got half a million, over half a million followers. He stops on a regular basis. You know, he, he stops and takes breaks all the time, you know? And then when he comes back, he comes back with a vengeance. But he takes breaks all the time. It's not because he's lazy. It's just he hasn't got anything that he particularly wants to put out. It's not, not making him happy. Yeah. He hasn't got the creative idea. But when it comes, then it does. So you just take breaks. People, you know, what, what's going to happen if you don't put out a video? Oh, everyone's going to forget about it. No one's going to forget about you. They'll remember you when you come back. Uh, yeah, I, I'm like Nas, to be honest. So if I don't feel like posting today, yeah. I don't post. I might, I might not post for a month or two. Yeah, yeah. Like... People who actually like my content, yeah. or for, for the person I am, will stay following me. Yes. But new followers might go, oh, okay, this guy's not posting. Right. I am following him. Yeah. Unfollow. Bye bye. Yeah. But the other challenging part now mm. in social media is your actual actual following. They mm. don't see your content you post. Yes. Because oh, when they go on their feed, all what they see is content of others. Yes. And the algorithms are just working in such an evil way. <laughs> just, you know, you know what I mean? Like, all oh, what you see is just useless videos. Yeah. <laughs> People doing this kind of dance or stuff. But you just got to remember, those videos are useful for somebody. So we can't have, there's no, you can't have a sense of entitlement. That I'm go, do you know what I mean? I'm going to own this platform. And no, listen, what people putting all those videos, they're even, if those videos are on the For You page, that's because people like those videos. So somebody somewhere is benefiting. Now, they're not benefiting in the way that you, you and I might say, well, you're getting from that, watching that video. Not benefiting, but people are. That's the thing. It's like a buffet, right? There's something for everybody. You just need to focus not on what other people are doing. You've got to focus on what am I bringing to the table. You've got to focus on what is it that I'm doing that would cause somebody to say, I'd like to listen to what this person's got to say. So, Abdurrahman, tell me more about the secrets of chasing your passion. Why do you get up every day with a big smile, positive, and striving to be the best leader? And, you know, chasing your passion day in and day out. I think there's a beautiful saying, which I find very, very, very inspirational. Beautiful saying of Nelson Mandela. And he said that 
action without vision is just passing the time. And vision without action is just daydreaming. But vision and action together can change the world. So what's meant by this? I I used to teach, I taught this many, many times. But it wasn't until I actually sat down with one of my sons and went through it with him that it really hit me how powerful it is. Actions without a clear vision, right, is just passing the time. A lot of people, we, we do things. Our days are filled with doing things. We're busy doing things. But is it linked to a vision of where we want to be five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now? Is it linked to a vision or are we just doing actions? If we're doing actions, whatever those things, actions, but it's not linked, it's not taking us anywhere. A year down the line, we're still in the same place that we were. Two years down the line, we might not even be in the same place. We might have gone backwards. If it's not linked to a vision, you're just passing time. And if you have a vision, how many people have visions? Oh, I want to be like this and I want to get there and I want to achieve this but they're not doing the actions to take them there, then all they're doing is daydreaming. So I see people doing a lot of actions. You're just passing the time. That's all. Just time's passing. And as for people, oh, I want this in my life. I want to be like that. But you're not doing the actions. Quite simply, you're just daydreaming. But you put those two things together. Actions linked to a vision that can change the world. So for me, it's that. I've got a very, very clear vision. Clear vision of what I want. And that is I want my family to be proud of me. And I want to leave something behind for people to, to take over after me, right? People to be inspired by. So I have a clear vision, and every day I know I have to get up and do the actions that are going to take me there. So that comes from discipline. I used to think it came from motivation, but I realized motivation's really not that useful. We get motivation, and the days we're motivated is a gift, it's a blessing. The days we're motivated, we're turbocharged. But the thing that makes us get up every day and keep doing what we need to do is discipline. We don't do things because we always want to do it because, as you said, we wake up with a big smile on our face. But we do it because we know we have to do it if we want to achieve our vision. And that goes back to, this, quite simply, that quote by Nelson Mandela. So that's what I think about all the time. That really fuels me. What a beautiful point you've said about motivation because you don't get motivation every day. No. We don't actually wake up every day with a big smile on our no. head. Oh, I want to go work out. <laughs> no. I want to go. I've got a meeting. I've got a team yeah. to. But it's all about discipline. Yes. And discipline is quite powerful. Absolutely. Motivation can be nothing. Yes. It comes and goes. Yeah. Just a feeling, right? That's right. And, and discipline is getting things done. Yes. Regardless of how you feel. Definitely. So to be honest today, I hit the, ju- I hit the gym. Yeah. Gone 30 minutes, cardio workout. Yeah. I, I didn't want to do it, but yes. I, was, I have to do it. Yes. And yeah, it's all about discipline. Discipline. And, and that's what makes you win championship. Yeah. Not motivation. Yeah, I agree. So I, I, I've seen your post recently. You start getting into the fitness life, yeah. <laughs> workout life. Yes. How's that been going for you? Amazing. And you look good, by the way. Thank you, bro. Honestly. I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I think I do too. You know, I can uh, <laughs> honestly say that now. I'm well, very, honestly. very happy. Because with all the years of focusing on many, many different things, focusing on social media, focusing on business, focusing on family, focusing on all of those things, along the way, I realized I'd let myself go. And I didn't realize how badly I'd let myself go until I got to Dubai. When I got to Dubai, I remember I was in, um, I was in Nikhilmul, and I was in, uh, is it Waitrose? I think I was in Waitrose. I looked around, and I was like, why is everyone here really in shape? Like, everybody, I'm, like I was standing at the till, and I'm looking up, and there's people, and they're, they're in shape. And I was like, this is really different from what I've been used to. Like, people in Dubai, for the most part, you don't see people out of shape. People are, take care of themselves physically, and it really hit me that, wow, I, I've... I've I, 
I've really neglected myself. So then I said to myself, right, everything else in my life is just about perfectly in place where I want it to be, except me. So now I need to fix me physically. So I was very fortunate, you know, closest person to me here in Dubai helped me to find a personal trainer. I found an incredible personal trainer. Shout out to Rami, Rami Classic is just what, as a coach, I recognize good coaches. And even though I'm not a, a bodybuilding coach, a physical fitness coach, I recognize what a good coach uh, Rami is. And I just, Rami told me at the beginning, listen, just stick to the plan. Do, follow what I, what I ask you to do and we're going to get there. And, you know, six months, seven months later, I've dropped over 32, 33 kgs. I've built, wow. you know, real muscle mass. I was in really bad shape. I'm telling you, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't walk to the door without breathing heavily. You know, I was eating and breathing so heavily and my wife, the kids would say, can you hear yourself? I'd be like, no, what? And they'd be like, you're breathing really heavily. I didn't realize how dangerously out of shape I got because that's the thing. Sometimes we can get so focused on other things, right? Oh, this person's doing this and that person's doing this. And we get so focused on all the different areas of our lives, good and bad. And sometimes we forget, to, what about us? What about taking care of ourselves? And that's it. I just committed through discipline, you know, to, to, to a daily regime of eating clean, working out every day, and, and just changing my whole lifestyle. So, yeah, that's, um, that's the, one of the best things that I've done since getting to Dubai has been getting in shape, you know? And, um, and you see that, as I said, around in Dubai, just, it, it, you know, right from the, the you know, even the, 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 the ruling family, you know, the sheikhs, you see them, they're, they're in good shape. People are taking care of themselves, you know? They, they really pride themselves on, you know, they've got all types of, you know, be, all the beaches here. You can work out in the beaches and it's just everything is there, is set up to help you to live a good, clean life. So if you good, want to good environment good environment for that and i think being out of shape here is is pretty much frowned upon it's not it's not considered a status symbol to to walk around and be out of shape if you can if you can avoid it now not everybody can of course some people just physically are unable to to help the way that they're uh, you know the way that they are perhaps they're, they're not physically able to to exercise like i am but as long as i am then you know this body is a gift from allah and, you know, the, there's a hadith, a saying of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessing be upon him, where he said, your body has rights over you. So this body has rights that we do good with it, that we look after it. And I think, you know, it's, it's from an Islamic point of view, it's not, it's, not, it's not encouraged for us to overeat, to be gluttonous, to, you know, to be physically unfit as I was. So, yeah, very, very happy. I mean, at the end of the day, the perfect mind is in the healthy body. Right, yeah. And, and for me, it's more about mental health. and Yeah, definitely. And, and, and you know, working out every day just yeah. helps me be in a good mood. Oh, yeah, definitely. Be, be more positive. I was diagnosed with attention deficit disorder. You know, wow. in the past, I've been on different medications. You know, I tried Ritalin, tried Concerta, all types of stimulant medications that would help balance things out, as they called it. Nothing, nothing compares to the feeling I get from working out. And, you know, just the, 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 the mental strength you get from you know, completing a workout. I, I do workouts sometimes and I'm honestly close to tears sometimes. Not because I'm like, you know, emotional, but I can't believe that I'm actually achieving what I'm achieving. Like I couldn't have done this six months ago, eight months ago. So really, you know, and again, that shows the power of having a good coach because there's so many charlatans out there. Everyone calls themselves a coach, right? Everyone calls themselves, it's easy to call, to call yourself a coach. 
But how do you find a good coach? Like finding a good leadership coach is the same thing. You have to make sure that you're finding somebody credible who really knows what they're doing. It's like an English teacher. You find anyone that speaks English can be an English teacher. No, not at all. Not at all. You have to know how to do something, how to coach people. So I was very fortunate. Shout out to Rami for that one. I completely you know? agree with you. There's a massive difference between a trainer, yeah. a good trainer, mm. and a coach. Yeah, right. Good point. It's completely different. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's so many great personal trainers yeah. when they've got a coach. Yeah. You know? So Definitely. Tyson Fury. Yeah. Are you a boxing fan? Yeah, well, I mean, so, I, you know, yeah, I, mean, I enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, he went on and he, he won the um, heavyweight, heavyweight mm. world championship belt because he had a great coach. Yeah. Right. Not a trainer. Right, right. He knows how to train. It's a good point. It's a good point. But it's, there's a, it's a big difference. Yeah, definitely. I want to ask you, what's the best part in your life? If you want to say, if, the, if you had like one particular part that... I mean, apart from just the fact that I have my faith. I mean, that's the best part of my life, knowing there was a large part, portion of my life where I didn't know why I was alive, right? Because if you imagine you don't know the purpose of your creation compared to believing that you know, whether you agree with me or disagree with me, you might disagree with what I believe the purpose of life is. You know, why are we here? I believe you know, we're here to worship Allah. That's it, to live a life that's pleasing to God, pleasing to the Creator. You might disagree with me, for example, on that. That's fine. If you disagree with me, you disagree with me. But even if you disagree with me, I'm sure you can understand how it feels not knowing what the purpose of your creation, not knowing why you're alive, and believing that you know why you're alive. So the best part of, of my of me, of my existence, is waking up every day knowing why I'm alive, knowing in my belief what, what I'm here for, what's going to happen to me after I die, everything connected with why am I alive. That's the best, that, that for me, a lot of people that are born as Muslims, they might not quite get that, but when you've lived most of your life not knowing that, and then you believe that you do know your purpose, it's like being blind and then you can see, or being deaf and then you can hear. So it, I get a... I get a buzz every day. There's not a day that goes by where I don't say, oh my God, alhamdulillah, thank God that I believe I know why I'm here. Because I can't imagine not knowing why I'm here. I can't imagine going through a day not knowing why I'm actually alive. Like that, I couldn't imagine that feeling. Apart from that, it's my family. I'm a family man. When I'm not working, I'm with my family. I have a very tight social circle. I have a very small number, very small number of very close friends that I trust. And when I say trust, I mean trust with my life. Trust. If anything was to happen to me, they'll take care of my family. Very, and those are, the, the, those are my real, you know, really close brothers. Very small number of, of people that I, I trust. I'm friends with everyone. I'm friendly with everybody. I get on with everybody. But to me, when I'm not working, I'm family. There's nothing better to me than just putting my feet up and having an evening in with, a, evening in with my family. You know? that's, that's really powerful. Yeah, I love that. There's nothing, that's everything to me. God bless you and your family. And you, man. And Thank you, you Habibi. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's really got me emotional. Oh. Yeah, no, honestly. Mm. And, and, and it's really hard to find a good circle of people mm. around you. And like you said, small circle, mm. but it's always about quality, not quantity. Yeah, definitely. Now, obviously, you've got a big audience, mm. you've got the fame, mm -hmm. people know you. Mm -hmm. How do you filter out? good and bad people because now everybody want to be on your table mm -hmm. everyone have a piece of mm -hmm. you how can you tell i mean i'd love to give you a, a winning a special formula a secret trick i i have the general belief that everybody i don't say everybody's good because i know everybody's not good but generally speaking everybody means good i don't i don't i'm not a suspicious person 
I don't trust people often, but I'm not suspicious of them at the same time. And there's a difference. I might not trust you to look after my car while I go on holiday, but I'm not suspicious that you're going to do anything to harm my car when I'm on holiday. There's a bit of a difference there, right? But what I have found is that people... Actually, I'll tell you what my father told me. My father told me, and, and I believe this, he said to me, the true friend, and by this, somebody that you can truly trust, is the person who is... is the true friend is not the one who, you know, you've got a problem, you call them up at 2 o'clock in the morning, they come and help you. That's a friend. The sign of a true, true friend is the one who's as happy for you as you are when good news comes to you. When you have something good come to you, they're just as happy as you. They couldn't be happier that, you, that you've got something good coming to you, right? And that, when you apply that to people, you find very few people will actually be as happy as you are when something good happens to you. They might be happy, but they're not as happy as you, right? It's very few. As for just when you're doing, you know, dealing with people in business and so on and so forth, for me, it's all about uh, word of mouth. Before I do anything here in Dubai, I always check with my, my closest, uh, closest brother here. I'll always say to him, do you know this person? What do you think about this person? What's your advice on this? What's your advice on that? You know, always ask people that you trust for, for advice on, on who to deal with. Um, but again, I think as long as you're not out there, you know, thirsty and hungry and, you know, craving for, for, for business or to do business with everybody, as long as you're careful and select about who it is you want to work with, and you, can, you take your time about vetting people. I, 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 we have a policy in our company. We limit the amount of companies that we work with, for example. When we have no interest in being you know, the next Uber-level com- organization. We don't want two or three levels of management within our organization. We want to keep it small, personalized, so that we can provide exceptional, circum- uh, exceptional service to, to our clients. And we can only do that if we limit the amount of clients that we work with. So on purpose, we choose to work with a small number of clients. And we're very, very careful about who we work with. Just as they should be careful about working with us, we're very careful about working with anyone because we have to work with the right type of people. And that just comes through communication. So again, getting to know people, you know. And, uh, but generally, you know, I'm pretty trusting, you know, to a certain extent on a surface level of people, you know. But actually trusting, trusting... That's something that you build with time, you know. Absolutely, you yeah. always say time reveals the true color of characters. Absolutely, that's that's very good. I just want yeah. to touch on a point you've just said mm. before I move into my next question. Is you're very picky about the quality of clients you work with. Yeah, and so am I. Right. Because for me, it's quality over quantity. Definitely. So I I don't want to work with hundreds of clients. Yes. And then I'm all over the place, and I'm not as just with each individual Definitely. I want to give my absolute best to each client yes and you know you need, you need clients that understand exactly what you do that's right and at the end of the day it's all about managing expectations yep and we've got a slogan in the company which says under promise over deliver yeah, love it and performance or results always say the truth about you yes now that, that's Very a great good. point I agree with you 100% so if you go back in time mm. 34 years ago mm-hmm. what one advice you would give to Joe, oh, Abdurrahman. I'll just say Joe. Okay. Okay, how, how, who am I talking to? What age is he? Just say 18, 19, 20. Okay. F- just figuring out his purpose in life, uh, being kicked out of the family, trying to figure out what, what he's going to do next. I say, like, be, what, what, one simple advice. Like. Just know in life you never know what's around that corner. 
So in life, we get very upset and frustrated with what's happening right in front of us, right? Oh, this happened and that's happened and this has gone wrong and that's gone wrong. What we can't see in life was just around that next corner, man, it's all going to get better. It's all going to get better. But around the next corner, it's probably going to get worse again. And then it's going to get better. So I would give the advice to a younger version of myself and I'd say, just remember this verse in the Quran that says, with every difficulty, it will be followed by ease. With every hardship, there's going to be an easier time. And it's then repeated the second time. With every hardship, every difficulty, there will be ease. And what this shows is that the ease will always be more. Because with every hardship, there's ease. With every hardship, there's ease. The, ease will, the easy times will keep coming, but they're going to be interrupted by difficulties. So no matter the difficulty that you're in, just around that corner, things are going to get infinitely better. But you just got to be patient. I'll tell you something that happened to me when I was 20... No, 30 years old. The company that I worked in, my first management position, it was the best, it, you know, that was my first company in Saudi Arabia. I worked in Jeddah, and after doing a terrible job as a manager, I did an amazing job as a manager, and I stayed there for four years. I was the poster boy of the company. Everybody loved me there. I was fantastic. I, I, the results spoke for themselves. I did such a good job. After four years, I decided it was time for me to move on from the company. And so I told them, I want to move on. I'm going to be going to another company. It's not a competitor. In Saudi Arabia, they have a pretty strict system of uh, who you can work with after you finish with a particular company. So when you finish a contract, they have the right to terminate you or end your service and send you out of the country. Or if they want, but they don't have to, they can allow you to transfer to another employer. But they don't have to. So I said, because I was on such good terms with all of them, they all love me. I love them. We had a great relationship. I said, guys, listen, it's been wonderful. It's been four years, but it's time for me to move on. And I'm going to go to somebody. I'm not going to go to a competitor, but I, I need to do something else because this, you know, I'm working day and night, split shift. It's, it's too much. They said, no problem, but we're not, we won't allow you to transfer. You're going to have to take a final exit, which means you have to leave the country. Then you can apply for any job you want and come back in. I said, guys, like, I, I don't want to have to go out. I just want to go to start a new job. It's not, a, not with a com- uh, competitor. And I'll sign whatever you want to say. I'm not going to start working with a competitor. They said to me, there's no way we're going to allow you to do that. It's a company policy. We're not going to let you do that. I said, what's wrong with you? That's when Khalil Campbell, my first mentor, gave me the advice, don't burn bridges that I mentioned earlier. He told me, whatever you do, do not argue it. Don't burn bridges. Try and find a good solution. So I did everything. Everything that would normally, you'd think it would get me what I wanted, which was for them to allow me to transfer to another company. They refused. I went to a very, very high up prince, one of the brothers of the, of the, the late king, King, uh, king Abdullah, uh, Rahim Allah from Saudi Arabia. Oh. I went to one of his brothers. I got a letter from one of his brothers saying, transfer Abdurrahman to his sponsorship. So the prince said, I'll be responsible for Abdurrahman. They refused, which is almost unheard of. They just, and I was saying, oh my God, that what? I was like, what is going on? Not only was I the poster boy of the company, everybody loved me. Why are you treating me like this? Why are you doing this? Like, this is insane. I couldn't believe it. I then stopped working for them because I'd handed them my resignation. They, was, they told me to get out of the country. At that time, my wife was pregnant and we couldn't fly because she was in, late in her pregnancy. We couldn't fly anyway. I couldn't leave. So I was stuck. I had no job. So I started working as a teacher in a, in a very tiny, tiny language center in Jeddah. And I started working as a teacher there in, in the evening, just earning a small amount of money, very small compared to what my salary was as a, as a general manager. So I started earning money teaching there. This, this 
saga with the old company went on for about eight or nine months and they they wouldn't they just refused so i said okay whilst i'm trying to find a solution let me try and um you know make some money so i was working teaching english when i was teaching english the p the students that i was teaching they were you know adults 20 26 years old i didn't know but they were so happy with having me as their teacher that they had gone to the owner of the company and they, they'd been saying, this guy's amazing, we love Abdurrahman, we don't want anyone else, blah, blah, blah. And the owner of the company called me in. He said, Abdurrahman, listen, we're really happy with what you've done. I said, oh, thanks a lot. He said, we're really happy. And look, my full-time job, the owner said, my full-time job is I'm dean of the engineering college at King Abdulaziz University. Would you come to work at the university? I said, my God, I'd love to work in the university because the university, you get benefits. And like, you know, I was like... I'd love it. It's but a big university. It's a big university. You, you just work from like seven in the morning. You finish at one in the afternoon. You've got your evenings free. Like it was, I, I always would have loved, even though it wasn't managing, it was going to be teaching English. I was so worn out from everything that I've been through. I just wanted an easy life. I was like, this would be lovely. Yeah, it'd be amazing. But I said to him, I don't have a master's. I don't have any of that stuff. He said, don't worry about any of that. We don't need you to have a master's. It's not a requirement. He said, look, we're going to give you an offer they gave me an offer it blew my mind at the time i mean i look back now it wasn't a big deal but back then i was like whoa this is amazing you know it was tickets to go back to the uk each year which the other job hadn't given me it was like a really good package and uh i ended up taking the package i had to in the end take a final exit i had to leave and go out of the country that you know that company wouldn't give me what i wanted and the whole time i was like those people i can't believe they did that to me right why didn't they just let me transfer before all of this now the university would never have let me transfer. They had a policy that was you would have had to go out anyway, right? Anyway, when I started the new job, which was with the government university, it was a government university, about six months into that job, my, my wife called me one day and she said, I'm at the hospital with your daughter, with our daughter. And they said there's a problem with her heart. She had a hole in her heart. The condition that she had was called trisomy 9p, a very rare genetic condition. The medical care that she needed, had we got it from an insurance company, they would, had, had I been working for a private company, they would never have covered the medical care that she needed because it was congenital, so she was born with it. She needed open-heart surgery. In the end, she needed wow. brain surgery, lung surgery, every kidney surgery, everything you could think about. If I had got what, and that's when I realized, wow, we can't see round corners. Because if I had got what I wanted, which was to be transferred to the prince or transferred to another private company, and then my daughter had been born with this condition, the private medical cover would never have covered what my daughter then needed for six, no, seven years of her life. She needed 24-hour medical care. Had I got what I wanted from getting any of those previous jobs... We would have just had to leave the country and go back to the UK and that would have been the end of it because nobody would have, no insurance company would have covered it. But because we worked for King Abdulaziz University, they have King Abdulaziz University Hospital, everything was covered. Her medical bill came to more than, total came to more than 2 million dirhams. It was all covered. It was all free. Had I got what I wanted, we would never have been able to, even if I got what I wanted, we would have had to simply just leave the country. So in other words, what was needed, Allah knew, in my belief, the creator knew this was around that corner. you just got to be patient. This terrible situation where these people are saying, we're not going to treat you right. We're not going to give you a transfer. This was, it's okay. This was all part of a plan. 
in the end, I got that job with the university and I realized, my God, imagine if I hadn't got this job. Imagine if I'd got what I wanted, right? And then we found these problems with my daughter. We would never have been able to cope. And that's why I say in life, you never know what's around the corner. You just got to be patient with whatever's happening and know that it's going to get better, you know? So that's, that's the advice I give myself. Wow, that's you know? really powerful. Mm. Honestly. Yeah. And life really gets better, right? Yeah. That's, that's absolutely around right. Around each corner, man. You never know what's around the corner. You know, it's, it's setting you up for the next adventure. And if you don't keep walking forward, you're not going to go around the corner, right? If you give up and you say, oh, I can't keep walking anymore. You just got to get around that next corner, you know? But you can't see what's around the corner. You just got to have faith. Faith you know? and belief. Yeah. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Dahman, I absolutely enjoyed this episode with you. Likewise, my friend. And I believe we should do a part two. I'll be happy to. I've got to. loads and loads of questions. <laughs> I still want to ask. I'll be happy ask to. Ask you honestly. And we've we got to do a part two. All right, let's do it. So before I end this episode, mm. there's a tradition in this podcast we do, which is the guest who comes here, ask a question for the next guest. Oh. All right? And the next <laughs> guest will ask the, the guest after. So okay. you're going you're gonna, you're gonna to have to write a question for the next guest. I'll be happy to. So let me just ask you the question that the previous guest wrote for you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, question. <laughs> What's the most important thing for you? Mental health or phys- physical health? Mental health. 100%. Because if the body goes, the mind can still function, you can still do great things. But if the mind goes and your body's functioning, very difficult for you to do anything, right? So you've got to take care of mental health and physical health. But if you've got to choose one, it's got to be mental for me. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you very much, Abdurrahman. And it was an absolute pleasure to Likewise, likewise. I've enjoyed it. And I look forward to, to do part two with you. Definitely, inshallah. Thank you very much. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Appreciate it.